Let us pray. Grant, O Lord, through our reflections on your word, that we might understand why some have called this Friday good, through Jesus Christ, who reigns with you and the Holy Spirit forever. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, my brief reflections tonight are from verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53. So the latter of the, of the two passages you have there, uh, those verses together. Uh, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we were healed. Are we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Some of you who, like me, occasionally enjoy listening to some of the better sacred music that's part of the Western tradition have discovered that few people set biblical texts to music with greater skill than George Friedrich Handel. Uh, he did not always hit home runs, but he did always properly fit the biblical lyrical text to the musical text that he designed for it. Many times when you go back and listen to them for the fifth or fiftieth or five hundredth time, you realize that many of his works simply could not be improved upon. And his chorus on this is one of those. Uh, he begins with a rather interesting thing. He has understood what's happening. And so the Hebrew text just begins with a little tiny particle. It's one syllable in Hebrew. In English, it's two syllables, surely. But Handel makes the surely into three syllables and repeats it, and so it is surely, surely. He hath borne our sins and carried our sorrows. It's a very unusual term that only appears 16 times in the Hebrew Bible, but in each case, it calls attention to something which is, on the one hand, utterly, utterly true, and on the other hand, somewhat surprisingly so. And so it's used somewhat rarely because there aren't that many cases where we want to affirm both that something is certainly so, and yet, on the other hand, somewhat surprising. When Jacob had his curious dream of heaven and earth reunited by a ladder stretching from the heavenly realm back to the earthly realm, he actually saw this blessed hope of a better eternity and future when heaven and earth would be re reunited. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. It is certainly the case, right? Surely the Lord is in this place, and surprisingly so. This isn't too much longer after the cursed banishment of Genesis 3. And now he has a vision of humans restored to their maker. Isaiah used the particle also in chapter 40. Verse 7, the grass withers, the flower fades, the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely, the people are grass. 
surely we are frail, fleeting, perishing, and yet surprisingly so because on our healthy days we feel strong. Solomon transgressed many of the commands that God gave to him. And when he reflected on it, King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And they did surely turn Solomon's heart away after their gods. And the place almost was judged permanently at that point. John Calvin said about this little one-syllable Hebrew word that handle stretches into six syllables, the particle is not only a strong affirmation, but assigns a reason of something which went before and which might have been thought new and strange. It is a monstrous reality that he to whom God has given supreme authority over all creatures should be thus trampled on and scorned. And if the reason were not assigned, it would have been universally pronounced to be ridiculous. But surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Remarkably, and yet equally certainly, he has borne our griefs and sorrows. Just a couple words about why I think it is so remarkable. And there are these two. That his dying, referred to in this text, and suffering are for us, and for our sin. And so let me mention first how remarkable the text says it's for us. Just listen to these words again without commentary. Our griefs, our sorrows, we esteemed him stricken. Our transgressions, our iniquities that made us whole, we are healed. We, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned the iniquity of us all. These ten references to us are all designed to make it clear that he did not suffer in all of his great holiness and innocence for anything that he had done. Because he looked to all the world as most wretched and abandoned by a just and holy God. And yet Isaiah reminds us again and again and again his suffering is not for anything wrong that he has done, but for the wrongs that we have done. And so we are mentioned almost as frequently here as the servant himself is mentioned. Those references to us exonerate him and all of his great innocence and all of his great nobility and testify to the world everlastingly that his suffering was not deserved by him but merited by us. Woven throughout the Holy Scriptures is the great doctrine of substitution. The whole thing recognizes that when Adam stands for us and fails, when our substitute fails, we are plunged into ruin, and then when the last Adam stands for us and succeeds, we are plunged into blessedness. And the notion every time a goat was sacrificed in tabernacle or temple, was reiterated again and again that part of the divine economy 
is the idea of substitution where one can suffer for another, and he did. And so this text says a good deal about us, but it also says a good deal about our sin in four ways. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In this portion of Isaiah 53, we discover that Christianity is the least flattering of all the world's religions. It so candidly places before us our transgressions, our iniquities, our sins, our turning to our own way, our going our own way. It refuses to say, good boy, well done. And it says again and again, that our religion deals honestly with sin and invites us to do the same. People are offended at many aspects of our religion. Paul said so, even when he preached to them. I doubt they would be offended if we talked about a deity who came and suffered to cure us of our sicknesses and make us healthier. They might welcome such. They probably would not take offense at a religion that taught about a deity who came and suffered to relieve us of our financial poverty and made us more financially secure. They probably wouldn't take offense at a religion that taught about a deity who came and suffered to make us wiser or nobler. And almost certainly they wouldn't take offense at a religion that taught about a deity who came and suffered to protect us from terrorists. But apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit, they cannot but take offense at a religion that declares that our sin is such a universal and incurable problem that nothing less than the death of the second person of the Trinity can fix it. And this is the least flattering thing a religion could possibly say to us. Handel was right to stretch the Hebrew particle into six syllables and to say, surely, surely, he has borne our griefs and buried, has buried or borne our sorrows. This text does remind us of such realities. And on this Friday that the church has historically called good, it is not because what happened is anywhere near good. It is where the consequences of what happened were so remarkably and are so remarkably good. We are freed this day and all of the remainder of the days of our lives from the sin that imprisoned us and separated us from our great Maker. We are therefore also free from all of the excuses explanations and extenuations of our sin to which we are almost habitually prone. I do not need to explain, excuse, or extenuate P. David's sin when Christ bled, died, and atoned for it. 
and you do not need to explain, excuse, or extenuate your sin when Christ bled, died, and atoned for it. And so this text reminds us that in the principle of God's great substitution, the sin bearer has borne the guilt of our sin and taken it away forever. And we join Isaiah in saying, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. I will permit Bernard of Clairvaux to conclude my reflection. What thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinners' gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, and thine the deadly pain. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.